series through Esther. If you weren't here last week, you, this is one of those where you probably need to go back because we did a lot of introduction work and it's a weird book. So you may want to go back and listen to that if you feel a little bit lost because we're just going to kind of pick up today where, with where the story is and just see what is going on in this crazy Persian castle. Um, so we are going to be in the end of chapter 2 of Esther and going into chapter 3 and finishing chapter 3 today. But before we get started, um, this image came to mind. Um, it's an image from my childhood. Maybe it's your, from your childhood too. I don't know. But there's the Disney version of Robin Hood with the foxes. You guys know what I'm talking about? And the singing rooster. Um, so there's this image, and it's, it just happens to be at a palace. Um, but there's an image of like chaos happening and all of the chaos kind of centers under this like umbrella slash like circus tent and a bunch of rhinoceroses and elephants and hippos or something. They're like running around blindly and <laughs> I think it's Little John. He like gets up on top of it and he's sitting on top and he looks up and he's like, who's driving this flying umbrella? And I just love that quote. Um, <laughs> And I love that because it kind of represents how I feel about life sometimes. It's like, who is in control of this? This is nuts. It seems chaotic. It seems like there's no real plan or greater vision or purpose. Everything just seems random and it seems like chaos. Um, and so in order to kind of enter into that tension, we actually have to first zoom out because Chapter 3, especially, will throw you into that tension of the chaos and the ridiculousness of life, and honestly, in a really dark way. And so if you read chapter 3 without being able to zoom out and see what's actually happening, and actually chapter 3 structured in such a way that it wants you to do that, um, you're going to be lost. And so we have to go all the way back to Genesis 3 in order to understand this chapter that we have today. And so if you remember in Genesis 3, after God creates everything and calls it good, and then he creates man and he calls it very good, the serpent enters into the garden and he tempts Adam and Eve and he gets them to rebel against God. Basically, by calling into questions God's goodness. He says, God is withholding something from you. He actually doesn't want you to have the good life. He doesn't want you to have flourishing like I do. And so here, eat this apple, and you'll actually know what it is to have the good life. You'll be like God. So he offers them that, and they take and they eat. And the, next, the very next thing that happens is that the God pursues them, and he comes because he says, the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. You can eat of all the fruit, of the trees in the garden that I have given you, but just th that one tree, don't eat of it. And if you do, you will surely die. And so he pursues them. Um, he pursues them, they hide, and he finds them, and he calls them to account. And as he's doing that, he issues what we know as kind of like the curses. He's cursing things. He's showing them the consequences of their sin. Um, but they don't die. Actually, something else dies. An animal dies in their place. 
But as he is showing them what life now looks like because you have done this, here's how the world's going to go. He says to the snake, he says, cursed are you above all livestock, and on your belly you shall go. So kind of low, under the radar, slithering around in the dust. And then to the woman, he says, you will have great pain in childbearing. And I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. And so in Genesis 3, you have this kind of um, functionality of the world under sin being defined as two different lines of people, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent but the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the woman. And so this plays out. You see this playing out in Exodus with Egypt. You see this playing out right after God rescues the Israelites from Exodus and brings them towards the promised land. The Amalekites attack them and try and destroy them. And so you see the working of the serpent and the seed of the serpent trying to destroy the people of God. And this goes further, and we're going to look at some of these examples as the text opens them up for us. But you have to understand this principle, that there is a fundamental hatred towards God's people in this world. And it manifests itself through the hiddenness of the serpent, manipulating and lying and deceiving and trying with everything that he's got to destroy the seed of the woman because he doesn't want to be destroyed. He knows that that promise is his destruction. And so he's trying to destroy the seed of the woman throughout all of biblical history and throughout all of our history as well. Well, we know that ultimately the seed of the woman produces Jesus it produces one seed, one offspring, who is the one who finally and ultimately crushes the head of the serpent. But that's not the end of history. If you remember Revelation, when we were in Revelation, there's this really weird scene where there's a pregnant woman who goes into the wilderness and a dragon is chasing her, and she gives birth to one offspring, and then kind of recedes. And then you see the dragon pursuing the offspring into the wilderness. And this is a picture of what life is like now for us. We are the offspring of Christ. So we are in the line of the woman through the blood of Christ, Jew and Gentile all alike, but we're still being pursued by the serpent because we're worshiping God. We, are, we have been aligned to the one true God. And God is so offensive to Satan because he has something that Satan can't ever have. And that is his essence, his perfections, his beauty, his goodness. And so Satan's intent is to pull worshipers out 
to cause them to doubt, to cause them to maybe, maybe come and worship him, but honestly, he settles for just not worshiping God. And so in this life, we are under the power of his dominion. And so we feel those attacks. We feel his pursuit of us. We feel that desire, that temptation to not worship God. And that is ultimately the power of Satan at work. And we also feel real persecution where Satan has power. It's not infinite power. He is still limited as a creature, but he has real power that he wields and destroys and persecutes and kills Christians just because they're Christians. We may not feel that here in that degree, but globally, that's what's happening. And so when we read Esther, we are meant to align with that storyline. It's not just the story of Esther, but it's the story of the whole Bible. And so I just wanted to give that to you so that you can follow it as it kind of pops up in this story, because that's what the author wants you to see. He wants you to see this as part of a bigger story that is all moving forward in redemptive history. So let's start in the end of chapter two, and we're just going to read this kind of section by section and go through it, and then kind of synthesize it at the end. So let's start with this um, chunk in chapter two, the end. Chapter two, verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so remember, Esther is now the queen of Persia. This is the most powerful empire. It encompasses basically all of the known world except for Greece. And Esther, a undercover Jewess, is now the queen of this empire because she won this really kind of like grotesque and very um, sultry beauty contest, essentially. That's the PG version. And so she is there, and we're all kind of entering into this, like, just ambiguity of the situation. And now we see Mordecai kind of, like, hanging out by the gate. And the gate isn't a literal gate. It might have a literal gate next to it, but it's actually a building. It's like the administrative center of the kingdom. And so Mordecai probably works there. And he's kind of hanging out, and he gets wind of this assassination, assassination attempt. And people are upset with King Ahasuerus because he has like, wasted a lot of money trying to conquer Greece. And probably people are starting to wonder, like, mm, is he really the guy? And so there's this assassination plot, and Esther still has not made herself known. And this is where Mordecai is shrewd, but 
you have to call into question his faithfulness. Because he's actually telling Esther, don't be distinct. Don't let them know that you are a Jew. And so again, we, we see that contrast to Daniel, where Daniel is very bold in showing himself to be a faithful Jew. Mordecai is instructing his, his niece, don't reveal yourself, because it's dangerous. And it, and it would have been. And so she still hasn't done that, and that just kind of shows that there's danger lurking still. That being a Jew in this situation was not super secure. They were kind of a boiling and simmering anti-Semitism in the Persian kingdom. And so Esther is used by Mordecai to kind of basically be a faithful servant of the king. And he warns the king. And so this is actually very commendable of, of Mordecai to do. He didn't have to do this. But he sees a plot, and he might even remember the command of Jeremiah to go into the cities of Babylon and now Persia and seek the good and the welfare of the city. And so he's being a good citizen by kind of exposing this plot. But notice what happens. It's just recorded in a book that then gets sent down into a dank dungeon somewhere for people to discover thousands of years after this. It just kind of happens and is written down, and then the narrative moves on. Interesting. All right, let's dive into chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gates said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's word, words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So we meet Haman. Haman is the antagonist of this story, for sure. And he makes quite a first impression. And you have to be really a, a really close and careful reader when you're reading a narrative of ancient Hebrew text. Because how the characters get introduced for the first time is very revealing. And the author kind of puts the most important thing about that person right there when they're first introduced. And so for Haman, the author introduces him as an Agagite. Well, the careful reader or just the ordinary Jewish person who knew their history very well would say, Agag, hmm, Agag. He was that guy that Saul didn't kill. 
when the people were in the land and there was an attack of Amalekite descendants, King Agag was the leader of the Amalekites and Saul spared him despite Samuel saying, Samuel the prophet, God, God's prophet of Israel saying to Saul, spare no one. Destroy the Amalekites and everything they have. Destroy it. Why would God want to destroy the Amalekites? Well, remember back to Exodus? The Amalekites had shown their antipathy towards God's people by trying to finish them off when they were at their weakest, right after they had just kind of come through the Red Sea and had escaped Egypt. They were a nomadic people. They were vulnerable. The Amalekites tried to come and destroy them. And so this is when um, Moses tells Joshua to go take an army and, and fight the Amalekites, and he's sitting there with his hands up, and he gets tired, and so they like prop his arms up. And they finally defeat them, but it's not a final victory. They're still, they're still survivors of Amalekites. And God says in Deuteronomy 25, do not forget to destroy the Amalekites. He says, I will destroy them and erase the memory of them. So God is trying to protect his people. He's trying to preserve the seed of the woman in a hostile, in a hostile world and Saul gets in the way. Who knows why he didn't kill Agag? But now what you have here is you have Haman elevated to this basically second in command of the most powerful empire on earth, and he's an Agagite. Now, we're not certain if he was literally an Agagite or if this is just the author's way of saying he hated the people of God. And it doesn't really matter. Because either way, there is somebody in power who is being used by the seed of the serpent, being used by the serpent to try and prevent the seed of the woman from coming to fruition. And this is how he chooses to do it. He chooses to do it by issuing this kind of vengeful, just hate-ridden desire to kill all of them. So this would have been every single Jew. This wasn't just in Susa, wasn't just in the region that they were at, but from India to Ethiopia, that's the entire known world basically, again, minus Greece, he's going to exterminate all of the Jewish people. So it gets dark really quickly. And so this is kind of like Hatfields and McCoys, but on a global scale. This is like two families who just hate each other and want each other to die. And notice that Mordecai, what prompts this whole thing is Mordecai not bowing, which on the surface might seem like a very honorable thing to do, but everybody else is bowing. And there's actually nothing in the Torah, there's nothing in Jewish law that prevents a Jewish person from showing honor to a king. And that's all that's being asked of here. And so... Why, does it, why is he not bowing? Well, remember, you have to imagine that Mordecai is feeling a little bit burned. It's like, I just saved the king, and now he promotes Haman? I'm not going to bow to Haman. 
And so his own pride is kind of like just getting entered into the story a little bit. This is not like a super noble not bowing. This is kind of a petty not bowing. And it results in an even more petty overreaction by Haman. And so it's just not a good look for either of them. Let's keep going and seeing what what ends up happening in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And so this is the point in the story where um, we are wondering who's driving the flying umbrella, and it's Haman. The signet ring was a seal of authenticity for any written command that it was coming from the king. And so if you had the signet ring, you could do whatever you wanted. You could write down anything that you wanted to write down, stamp it with the signet ring, and it was an official order from the king himself. And so Haman is now in possession of this. This means he has the full power and authority of the Persian kingdom to do what he wants to do, which is to destroy all of the Jews. And so he gets to it. And he does it in this very, um, it's, I mean, it's psychopathic in some ways. Because he's like, yeah, let's, you know, let's cast lots to see when we should have this day of slaughter. And so it just seems so disconnected. It's so disconnected from any human goodness or decency. Um, It's just like, let's leave it up to random chance to see when we should destroy this entire people, millions of people, when we should slaughter them. And notice, too, that this is something that is possible because, again, there's in Persia, there's this lurking anti-Semitism. There's a lot of Jews in Persia, and they're kind of a threat. Notice what Haman says to King Ahasuerus. He says, there's a people scattered throughout the whole kingdom. So there's a lot of them, and they're everywhere. And they have laws that are unlike our laws and the laws of other people. So far, it's true. But now he takes that truth, and he just starts to enter a little bit of deception into it. And he says, they do not keep the king's laws. Who doesn't keep which of the king's laws? He's not super specific about that. He just paints this general picture of a rebellious people who are dangerous to the welfare of the kingdom and for the king. And so he he kind of paints that picture 
And he says, it's not to your profit that you tolerate them, but here's what is to your profit, king. If you let me do this, I will donate 10,000 talents. That's like 75 tons of silver. This would have been like over 70% of the income for the entire kingdom for a year in one lump sum. Now, who knows if Haman actually had this? We don't really know. But he probably would have got it after they plundered the slaughtered Jews. He probably would have been able to come up with it. And he's also maybe the descendant of a king. And so he might have incredible wealth. And he's willing to... He's willing to put it all into the pot of destroying the Jews. It's terrifying. And then Ahasuerus kind of, he uses this negotiating tactic that was common back then by saying like, oh no, the money is yours. Like, I don't want your money. When he, he wants the money. And it's understood that he will get the money. And so um, Haman is sitting pretty. And he's excited. And so he goes in verse 12. Let's pick it up. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. The 13th day of the first month is the night before Passover. Here's what happens. An edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So imagine you, a Jew in Persia, And on the night before, you're getting ready to celebrate the most meaningful holiday and remembrance of God's provision for you to bring you out of impossible circumstances, to rescue you from Egypt. You hear of this edict. 11 months from today, you and all the Jews are going to be destroyed. Who's going to do it? Your neighbors the town that you're living in is going to come and hunt you down and exterminate you. Who is driving this umbrella? And this is where the chapter ends. And for us, we're entering now into kind of that angst, the tension of this story, which is, where is God? Why is he doing this? Why is he allowing this? But that's even not the right question when you zoom out and look at scripture, because this is actually going according to God's plan. This is the enmity of the seed of the woman and the enmity of the serpent, the seed of the serpent, working itself out in real history. 
the Passover is not something that we should gloss over quickly because it is a foreshadowing of the order to the chaos that God has in mind as he works this out. The seed of the serpent is actually given the power from God to pursue the seed of the woman. Don't miss that. This is not like Star Wars where you have one bad force and a good force and they're at odds and they're kind of equal and we're kind of waiting to see how this works out. No, this is one God who is sovereign over all, one creator who creates all, one sustainer who sustains everything. And from his hand, the power of the serpent is leveraged against the offspring of the woman. And for us, as we live disconnected from, this, from these events by a few thousand years, or almost 2,500 years or so, we still feel this. We still feel the consequences of evil. But we feel it in a different way. And so we need to know, what do, what do we do with this? How does the suffering of God's people make any sense now? And in order to understand that, we have to see the fulfillment of the Passover. Because what Esther didn't know, what Mordecai didn't know, what the Jews in Persia did not know, is that the fangs of the serpent were not meant for them. They were meant for the one offspring who would come. And this is where you see God working even through the designs of evil people to bring about the destruction of evil. It's because as the fangs sink into Christ on the cross, the full power of the Roman Empire now is being poured out on him on a Roman cross. The death of Jesus is actually the death of death. It's the nuclear weapon of Satan. It is the ultimate example of how he is attempting to separate God from his people, how he's attempting to gather worshipers away from God and to himself. And in the death of Christ, you see God working out his plan to perfection. Because in the death of Christ, the plan was always in the, for the resurrection of Christ, the triumphant victory of Christ demonstrated to all the earth, to all the universe. And in that same way, and we're going to turn to 1 Peter 4, because we have to know how should we live now. In response to that, in response to the fulfillment of the Passover, in, in response to the perfect lamb rescuing us from death, here we are. And we're still in some of the same circumstances. We still feel persecution. We still feel the pull away from God. What should we do? And so I want to slow down and read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with a mindset of suffering. 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Arming yourself with a mindset of suffering, just as Christ suffered, is the way of life for the Christian. It's how you engage in the battle, and it's completely counterintuitive, and it, it doesn't make any sense. Because it's essentially saying, yes, there is powers and forces that are trying to destroy you, and they will. So you fight back by suffering? Yes. Arm yourselves with the mindset of Christ. He suffered perfectly. And in his suffering, he was vindicated. Because the full power, everything that Satan had, he poured out on Jesus. He tempted him with earthly power. He said, just come be my king and you don't have to do that. You don't have to suffer, Jesus. And Jesus dismissed him. And so he went about to try and devise the most brutal suffering that he could imagine. He tempted all of Jesus' friends to abandon him in his greatest time of need. And Jesus suffered faithfully. Think about Job, too. When Satan wants to attack Job and say, like, yeah, he's only faithful because he creates suffering in Job's life. But Job was armed as a forerunner to Christ. He was armed by suffering to God. He brought his suffering to God. He lamented to God. And what ended up happening, that suffering was the very tool that God used to bring Job deeper into his love. And that same thing is going to happen for us. And read that list in 1 Peter 4, because I think it's instructive for us. This is what we are tempted with. This is what people don't understand about Christians in our culture, in our area. It's like you're not living for yourself. You're not living a life where you are God. You're living a life of suffering and of sacrifice. And when you do something as simple, it sounds simple, it's actually hard, of keeping yourself separate from what the rest of the world wants to do, you put a big target on your back. Because you're saying, I worship someone else. I worship the one true living God. And there's nothing that Satan hates more than that. And so he'll come for you. And as you suffer, you become a witness of the power and the goodness of God, and you become a witness of the foolishness and futility of Satan. And so this is the heel that is bruised for us, but it's his head that is ultimately crushed. To live this out is hard 
because we don't know where it's going all the time. We're living a life, and this is why suffering is such a unique tool to try and get us to fall away from God, is because it exposes and uses against us our weakness and our finiteness because oftentimes we can't see the usefulness. We can't see the redemptive power that is there. And so this is one of the functions of the book of Esther is to remind you of that. This is not happening to you for the first time. It's not happening to God's people for the first time where there's persecution and suffering. But this is the story of Scripture. And our call is to walk by faith in the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we thank you that you give us your word. That, yes, Lord, we feel, we feel suffering. We feel attack. We feel that there is a power that is manipulating the details of our lives in ways that we don't understand, in ways that don't seem good, in ways that aren't good. We are hurt by evil, Lord, and we know that this is all coming from your enemy. Lord, we feel helpless. We don't see it. We don't know why. But you have empowered us and equipped us, Father, to take the mindset of your Son who came and lived for us, who suffered for us, so that the life that we now have, we might be able to adopt his mindset and to suffer for you that we would demonstrate your goodness, our trust of you as ultimately good. Despite anything that Satan could throw at us, Lord, keep us close to you. Help us to remember your goodness. Help us to remember that you ultimately are in control and that our suffering is not in vain, our tears are not wasted, but they're redemptive and that you're using all of it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.